welcome to another episode of The Brew Deck. For this round, I'll be your host, Jared Runyon. After double-checking our instruments, it looks like we're due for an innovation infusion. I can think of no one better suited to the task than Terry Ferendorf. Terry is the Malt Innovation Center Manager at Great Western Malting and has a long history of infusing some needed energy into the craft beer world. She is most well known for founding the Pink Boots Society, a group that works to open up the brewing industry to women across the globe. Terry, being a master storyteller yourself, tell me and the listeners more about your journey in your own words. Well, as beer is concerned, um, I grew up in a German-American family in Wisconsin, and we had beer with meals on a regular basis, especially pizza night. And when I was nine years old, my family attended our church's rummage sale in Wauwatosa, Wisconsin. And I was so excited when I found a little blue booklet called How Beer is Made. I was thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to find out how beer is made. So I bought it with my allowance, brought it home, opened a booklet, expecting to learn how to make beer. And such disappointment. There were mash presses, giant machines, and I thought, oh my gosh, you have to own a factory to make beer. So I was kind of discouraged with that. I did go on to make homemade breads at 10 years old. I just really, really dig yeast. I think I'm like a yeast whisperer or something like that because yeast gets along really well with me and I have never had a problem with yeast. So I started there and then it was pretty cool. My Girl Scout troop got a tour of two companies that I remember. One was McDonald's and I did work there in high school. It also, uh, my, my Girl Scout troop also went to Miller Brewing Company in Milwaukee. And that was, of course, my favorite one. They only gave us root beer at the end. But I really think that the Girl Scouts should continue that tradition and bring girls to see breweries, wineries, and distilleries, because why can't these kinds of fermented beverage businesses be our career goals? I mean, I grew up thinking that, you know, I never knew that beer could be a career. And we're definitely making some changes with that. Yeah, that's really quite fascinating to think about because really you should be able to imagine yourself in any of these professions, regardless of your gender. Absolutely. And so when I was in college, I wasn't fermenting anything yet until I was in my uh, speech class. You had to take a speech class in sophomore year. And I gave a speech on how to load a backpacking backpack for the right kind of weight distribution. And one of my classmates gave her how-to speech on how to make jug wine. So that day I ran out and picked up some frozen Welch's grape juice and some baker's yeast and sugar. And I went home and I got a gallon jug and put a balloon on it. And that was my first fermentation. It was kind of strong, but we'd mix it with 7-Up or Sprite or something. And then when I graduated from California, I moved well, I moved from Wisconsin to California, and I looked into making homemade wine, but really good wine was really pretty cheap compared to Wisconsin. So I started making beer. My then boyfriend, when we broke up, he stopped making beer, and I kept going. That's awesome. I mean, obviously, you've loved brewing and fermentation of all kinds for as long as it seems like you can remember. But how did that eventually bloom from a passion into your career? Well, I was a computer programmer in California at that time, working in a cubicle, which I was not fond of. So I was looking around for some kind of a career change. And then I attended the American Homebrewers Association's annual homebrew con. And I met some pro brewers, similar to myself, who had jumped from high tech careers into professional brewing. And I knew if they could do it, I could do it too. Because sometimes, like you kind of alluded to earlier, you have to identify with someone already in a job before you can visualize yourself doing that job. And we all started as home brewers. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure we know that representation is such a key, especially for children to see what they can become. But that's amazing that you kind of forced a path for yourself. And now 
so many women and girls look up to you as a role model, which leads us into the next big thing I'd like to talk about, which is the Pink Boot Society. You founded that and you were the genesis for that. Like, how did that happen and where did that start for you? Pink Boot Society, you know, in that same way that women need to visualize themselves doing the job. And that's why I'm the role model, because they say she can do it. I can do it, too. So when I began brewing professionally, I knew of only one other woman brewer. And I would say she was somebody that I visualized. She could do that job. I could do it, too. And that was uh, Melly Pullman, based here in Portland, Oregon, where I live. And so over the first 19 years of my career in beer, only a few more women joined the industry. But then I quit my 17-year brewmaster job in 2007, and I went on this epic 1,300-mile road trip across the United States and, and back. I, I called myself the road brewer. I had an identity crisis when I quit my brewmaster job, so I had to give myself a new title. So I was the road brewer. And anyway, on that trip, I met several women brewers. They talked about feeling really alone in the beer industry and that they had never met another woman brewer before I stopped and visited their brewery. So I thought, well, gosh. If not me, you know, who and if not now, when? And I thought, let me start a list to see how many female brewers are out there, right? And I called that list the Pink Boot Society, and I threw it up on my little website I had created where I put all these articles that I had written. And now that little list has morphed into a global nonprofit charity supporting about 2,500 women members who are fermented beverage professionals. And we support them with scholarships, educational information at chapters and meetings all over the whole world. And due to the work of Pink Boot Society's team of over 300 hardworking volunteers, we've drawn attention to the subject of women in beer and of women in the fermented beverage trades. And so the number of women choosing beer, cider, wine, or spirits as a career, it's grown substantially. Plus, you know what? There's a lot of cross-fertilization going on between these different beverage industries, which is why Pink Boots expanded beyond just beer. So for any women who are listening, to qualify for Pink Boots membership, if you earn 25% or more of your income from beer, cider, wine, or spirits, you are welcome to join and it's well worth it. Yeah, that's amazing. And just to put it in terms of a timeline, to think that just 13 years ago, there was such isolation in the community of women brewers feeling like they had no connection to now and like what you've created. Those numbers are astounding. Another thing that Pink Boots does is that annual hop blend that they partner with YCH for. How did that like kind of come about and what's the process there that makes it so special? That annual Pink Boots hop blend has just been a game changer for the Pink Boots Society. This year, it raised, hit this number. $117,807 with sales by Country Mall Group and Yakima Chief of those hops. Pink Boots used that money to bring in professional management because, let me tell you, those volunteers were quitting left and right because <laughs> we were working them so hard. And although I'm the founder, I'm not the one who runs it. I'm not even on the board anymore. I fired myself after nine years because I knew my vision was only so large. And, I, you know, we needed people who were committed besides me to lead it into the next level. And the board is so freaking amazing, if I can use a word. That takes a certain amount of self-awareness, I think, for you to realize that this is something that you kind of had to let grow on its own beyond you. Well, you know, I've read tons of management and business books, and they all say that the founders often will reach the edges of their wingtips and cannot really visualize beyond that. And, and so I always had it in my head that I would need to fire myself someday. And that if I ever let my ego get in the way, that Pink Boots Society would die because it's not about me. It's about the 2,500 members and all the volunteers and the hardworking board 
It takes a team to grow and build and be Pink Boots Society. And that's what it is. It's not me. It's everybody. It's all of them. So we are now also using that money to increase the number of annual scholarships. And we have international chapters all over the place. And they all are saying, we want scholarships in our own countries so that we can have our scholarships taught in our own native languages. So we're some of that money is helping them develop their nonprofit status so they can then raise money locally for their own native language scholarship programs, which is so cool. That, yeah, it's amazing. And really, the best part of the Pink Boots Hot Blend is that camaraderie that is a part of it. And it's a super fun event, normally that occurs during the Great American Beer Festival meeting, where our members get to test out different hop combinations. Yakima Chief Hops brings the hops there and people are doing individual or team, little teams that form little teams and they're doing these hop rubs. They're coming up with these hop combos that they're like, no, not this one. Oh, try this one I just made. And then they put these little combos forward and then everybody gets to vote, all these members. So the hop blend every year is selected by the Pink Boots members themselves. And then it's pelletized and put on sale, you know, mostly through pre-orders because we have a new blend each year. So we don't want too much left over. This year we made extra because we had so many requests of people going, your hop blend is so amazing that I want to keep using it throughout the year in all sorts of different beers. So people have had that opportunity this year. Oh, and you know what else? This year, the Yakima Chief also put it into two ounce bags so the homebrewers could jump on the bandwagon. And a little bit of all these hops, $3 a pound, is going toward Pink Boots Society. And so it's huge. Then what's, what's also cool is that all these breweries and homebrewers that are getting this hop, they're doing these collaboration brews, mostly in March because of International Women's Day on March 8th, but they're having so much fun. Tri-clamp races, barrel tosses, you know, there's time during a brew day when you have so many people there to keep people going. I mean, we do ours and we have malt plant tours and stuff like that, but super fun and they all... You know, if you guys are on social media, look up Pink Boots, hashtag Pink Boots Brew Day or something, and see all the photos coming in for 24 hours around the world on around March 8th. It's really awesome. And you know what? Every brewery can use this hop, not just breweries that employ women. So all breweries can support women in the fermentation beverage trades in this way. Yeah, now, now that Pink Boots has expanded beyond just beer makers, it can be kind of interesting to see what ideas our newest members, the female distillers, winemakers, and cider makers. It's kind of interesting to see what, what those members are going to want to do. It's it's absolutely great to see it expanding and to bring in more members like that. You kind of mentioned earlier about how Pink Boots is expanding across the world, but you've you've traveled the world actually quite a bit, and you've seen breweries everywhere. What have you like taken away from those experiences where you've been able to travel to other countries and meet people from different languages? And what have you taken away from that? Well, during that road brewer trip, road brewer trip, you read all about it if you want at roadbrewer.com. In 2007, I visited 71 breweries and brewed at 38 of them. And what I took away from that is that, first of all, I was surprised at America's regional beer diversity. It didn't occur to me how regionally diverse it is. The West Coast, the pioneers, they are all about what can we invent? You know, it's like they invent, they think they invented beer. The East Coast still looks to Europe you know, well, if we're going to make, you know, this Euro style beer, we have to use base malt from Europe. Whereas the West Coast has gone, we're going to reinvent that Euro style beer. It's going to be reminiscent of, but in its own West Coast way. So that was really surprising. And each brewer tackled the same kinds of technical issues in unique and different ways. I would see hop guns, hop cannons, 
dry hopping this way, shooting hops into a fermenter that way. I mean, all these different technical issues, but completely different solutions, which is super cool. I was humbled by the generosity, kindness, and, and even the invitation to be part of the family offered by different brewers. They'd say, hey, come with us. You know, we're going to go out to Cape Cod. We're going to have a bonfire on the beach. You know, all our friends are going to be there, and you're coming too. You know, sleep in our, our kid's room. We told him we'll go to his friend's house. Look at his cool guitar collection on the wall. I mean, surprising, and, and but so humbling. And then just love their friendship and camaraderie. You know, some would make me breakfast. I mean, what? And then I love the creativity and the ingenuity embraced by all the brewers, which is something I see in our Malt Innovation Center every day. That's great. That leads me to another thing I was hoping to talk about, which is the Malt Innovation Center. You've been there for a couple of years now, and you kind of spearheaded it and made it into what it is now at Great Western Malting. Currently in Vancouver, Washington, just across the bridge from Portland, Oregon. It's on the same location as the Great Western Malting Plant. It's just, you know, in a separate building. What's it like being so close to the malt house and being able to create your own malts and experiment? Well, first of all, it's super fun and creative, and it, and I feel like I have the best job at Great Western. I'm just lucky like that, I guess. But you know, we built our Malt Innovation Center in 2015, and our mission is malt quality and innovation. Starting in July, we test the new crop July into August with the winter barley, and we test the new crop as it comes in so that we can tell the malt plant you know, what to expect. Because if a barley piece comes in off a farmer's field and it's a little dry or doesn't want any water, or wants water, or who knows what, you know, barley can't talk and say, I'm hot, I'm cold, I'm thirsty. So we have to kind of get some information so that the malt plant knows what to expect. We also are always testing new varieties of barley. So they're always coming up with new varieties. So we test those because these are not necessarily promoted by the American Malt Barley Association yet. We're part of the team that's going to test that and say if they malt, you know, because if they don't germinate evenly and you're going to have a lot of, you know, unsprouted kernels in your batch of malt and that would be terrible for quality. So new specialty malt development, that's probably my favorite part where we actually go, hmm, you know, what crazy malt can we make that brewers might enjoy? Because seriously, brewers, they're artists. And their malt is like playing with the Crayola crayon box. And if you got the 64 color box and somebody comes to you and say, hey, I got three more colors, people are like, what? I got to try those. So that's fun, making new varieties of specialty malt. So then we also have a brewery in our malt innovation center. And we brew with our own malts, including we do collaboration brews with local breweries and distilleries. And we have a sensory panel that we train and we host sensory panel normally about twice a month. A little different now in the pandemic, but. We still have it going on. About six times a year, we do a tap takeover at a local brewery with our own beers, and we host a bi-monthly employee appreciation party. And we also organize brewery and distillery tours of the mall facility for our customers. And occasionally, we answer technical questions from brewers and distillers. And we also organize our employee free work day, which is coming up in two weeks, which is cool because any employee that would like to get some free work to bring home and do a little sample home brewing can do that and our annual employee homebrew competition. So that's kind of what we do in the Malt Innovation Center. Yeah, it's amazing. And even just over the past couple of years, it, it just seems like the Malt Innovation Center keeps growing and growing in its responsibilities and what it's created. It's really awesome to see, including I know that you've been adding in new equipment into that lab over the past couple of years. What's some of the newest stuff that's kind of come in that you can talk about? Well, the main focus of the Malt Innovation Center is the pilot malting unit known as the PMU. 
That's why it's not the brewery innovation center. But the PMU, it's a hundred kilo batch size, three vessel custom made unit, made in England, and all the extra buzzers and valves that we could want, temperature control, moisture control, everything. It includes a cylinder conical steep tank and reservoir, steam capable, that's pretty unique, germination vessel and a steam capable kiln vessel. And our pilot brewery, which can't forget about that one, is a custom one barrel brewery made by AAA and Mark's Tanks locally. We have a little Sosnowski seed cleaner that I found online that a Mennonite farmer in Ohio sold. I mean, just equipment that it takes to malt in any capacity on our small scale, roast, you know, teeny tiny bits. And with those steam capable vessels, man, we could do a lot and then also brew with it. So that's kind of the equipment, uh, what we have lined up there. Yeah. And tell me a little bit about some of the malts that have come out recently that we're currently getting into the market that have come directly from the Malt Innovation Center. Well, brew malt is pretty cool. I will tell you about that one first. Brew malt began as a thought experiment with my innovation team. What beers are brewers exploring right now? And this was a couple of years ago. And it, we, this malt has been out for a few years and it takes a few years to get it all the way into production and distributed in bags and all that. So the answer then was kettle sours. Yet some brewers didn't make sours because they're concerned about the live lactobacillus culture escaping and messing up their standard beers, you know, like IPA. So we thought, what if we did the live bug culturing and created a finished malt without live bacteria that had some sour and funky characters that brewers could add to any beer they wanted? Well, well, we tried a lot of crazy different ideas. Some work better than others. But one of the parameters we have to be concerned about is that will we be able to scale this up to the size of the tanks in the plant? So our PMU, Pilot Malting Unit, has so many buzzes and bells that we can do just about anything when we make a malt, but not all of those techniques can scale simply and safely because safety is something we're really keen on at Great Western Malting. So once we figured out the scale procedures on this malt and some of those crazy ideas and we meshed them all together, we started making it. So if you tasted our brew malt in a chew test, it will start sour, then go fruity like pineapple, and then finish biscuity. I really, I really love this malt. It's one of my favorites. <laughs> I love that malt. Yeah, it's so fun. And then, and, and you know, I've seen people putting so many different kinds of beers and not just Belgians or Saisons or something. I mean, it's amazing in IPA. <laughs> so next one I'll tell you about, Biscuit Rye. Now this one's cool. It just started, right? I mean, it's just out there in all the warehouses. We're just like going gangbusters with it this week. So Biscuit Rye started its development life in our modified tabletop coffee roaster. And we had a summer intern at the time from Oregon State University. And that's a great university with a great fermentation program, by the way. And he's now a molster in our plant. So he's actually went from summer intern into an awesome position with us. So our summer intern roasted barley, wheat, and rye at various temperatures and for different lengths of time in our little tabletop coffee roaster. Not too bland, not too burnt. In the middle, just right like Goldilocks, right? So... We like the flavor of the biscuit rye, best of the three, because it was so interesting and unique. And I love this malt too. And I've used it at 30% in a pale ale and I've used it at 30% in a whiskey wash. Okay, I didn't do that, but I collabed on that. <laughs> it's a wonderful biscuit malt for any beer style. And you know what's cool about it too? When you look at it, it has a slightly blue color, just like rye. It doesn't show up in your beer. It's just look at the grain. So that one's pretty cool. The next one, I did not develop this malt in the MIC. So the first 
It's Caramel Steam is what I'm talking about. The first Caramel Steam, it's a 40-color malt. It's in our lineup. That was developed in the plant around the time that we were building the Malt Innovation Center. But we basically were making crystal malt, but with damp heat instead of dry heat. And we don't call it a crystal because only green malt that has reached sacrification temperature in a commercial roasting drum can be called crystal malt. So we're doing the same thing, but not dry, right? We're using damp heat. So the flavor is interesting. It's similar to a true crystal, but, and this is cool, it seems to allow more of the hops to shine through. So a lot of brewers are really loving this malt. So we've developed several colors, both light and dark in the MIC, but none of the additional caramel steams have made it to the production side of things just yet. We're, we're still in trials. I'll do one more. So Munich malt. So we had a Munich malt for many, many years. It's a standard Munich. That was a 10-color Munich. And by the way, when I say color, that's SRM. And SRM, a lot of people call it level bond, but level bond actually isn't accurate, the accurate word. SRM is the accurate word. So first was the regular Munich. Then it was the Mela, which is a melanoid malt. And that's basically an ultra-dark Munich malt that's like a 30-color. And it's so wonderful in your darkest dunkel waters. Then after that, we made... A dark Munich, which is 20 SRM color, and that came between the regular Munich and the Mela. And dark Munich is also wonderful in Dunkel lagers and contributes less dark fruit than the Mela, but plenty of lovely malt complexity. Then our newest Munich, which is the light Munich and a six SRM color, is delicious. I mean, you could munch on it by the handful. It's just a lighter version of our standard Munich. You know what? With so many breweries adding lagers and lighter beers to their lineup, I think that Light Munich will be right on target for those new beers. Oh, you know, and I'd love to see those Light Munich lagers this summer all the way into next year. Yeah, no, that'd be great. I guess we've talked about the MIC and the stuff that you've done in the past there. Is there anything that you can tell us about that you're working on right now or is it all still pretty secret? You know, we don't really release the specific names of the specific malts we're working on the MSC while they're still in prototype stage because brewers are so creative that when they hear or read about a new malt, their brain immediately designs a recipe about it just like that. So what I can tell you is that, in my opinion, with so many hop forward beers out there, I think a full lineup of caramel steam malts would be just fantastic. And then since I love biscuit malts so much, I'd love to see us expand beyond the biscuit rye. And I personally would love to see a lighter colored brew malt because folks who are making these lighter lagers and other types of lighter ales and stuff for summer, they might be interested in a brew malt too and not have that little bit of extra color that that gives the beer. Yeah, I can't wait to see what you guys create next personally and look forward to hearing more about them. That leads me to, do you have any advice that you'd want to give out to any uh, brewers that are either practicing their recipe development when it comes to malt or uh, anything else in regards to the products you talked about before? Yes. My main recommendation for innovative brewers as they experiment with new recipes is twofold. First, I'd say always ask what's new when you're talking to your malt supplier. We release up to four new malts annually, so there's always something new to try. Learning more about the malt will get your gears turning, like I mentioned, and I bet you design a new recipe in your head before you put down the catalog or data text sheet. And secondly, I would recommend that all brewers learn how to perform the ASB hot steep method for malt sensory analysis. Nothing's going to give you a better idea of malt flavor than the ASB hot steep method, or HSM. We use it with our sensory panel. It's easy and it works. Here's an example, especially, you know, when you're getting some new malts you're not familiar with. Barley is a grass. Some malts taste grassy when you chew them. So don't let a chew test be your final answer. Some of those grassy chewing malts are better tasting when you evaluate them with the ASP hot seat method for flavor 
And then you'll know which recipes to match them to. You want the best tasting malt, so make sure you're getting what you think you're getting in your new recipe. Absolutely. Great tips for any brewer out there. All in all, Sari, it sounds like a dream job that a lot of brewers should aspire to have, which you have at uh, Great Western Malting. How would you sum up your path from being a brewer or even a home brewer to what you have now at the Malt Innovation Center with the R&D? If you can't be a brewmaster, the next best thing is to be in malt innovation. I've always loved recipe design and new product development, and I get to do both now. I was lucky enough to capture Great Western Malt's Innovation Center job because, well, I spent 19 years brewing as a Great American Beer Festival award-winning brewer, one year in beer retail, six years in malt and hop sales, and I was in the right place at the right time. And even though I already worked for the company, I wore a suit to the interview for this job. And really, my whole career was leading me to where I am right now. And you know, I'm hoping that, that I'm inspiring somebody out there to pursue their dreams and pursue their passions. I mean, I'll never know, but if I did know, it would make my day. Yeah, that's excellent. Well, with all of the awesome malt that you have access to at any given point. What's your favorite beer to make from them? Like, what's your favorite beer style personally? Make or drink, I would say. I really love a late 1990s style IPA within IBU or international bittering units at about 60, maybe 65 and clear as a bell. I think people are calling them retro IPAs. And you know, what? those things are awesome. And you can kick back several on any kind of day with any kind of weather. Well, I have to say, Terry, personally, I can't imagine anybody else being in the position that you are now and doing it as well as you have. Uh, you are an inspiration to me and I think probably a lot of other people out there. Again, Terry, thank you so much for talking with me and making yourself available for the podcast. And anybody else out there, please give us some likes and subscribes. Listen to the podcast when you can. And Terry, where can people reach out to you if they want to talk to you on social media or any other place? Well, I'm on Facebook under my name. I guess you could private message me. I'm at tfarendorf at gwmalt.com. Somebody wanted to email me a question or something. And hey, Jared, thanks so much for having me on. Of course, it's my pleasure. Before we head over to the Whirlpool with Toby Tucker, we're going to take a quick break. After that, we're going to hear about some innovative biofuel work courtesy of John Egan. So be sure to stick around. Today's second guest is one who can tell us all about how he uses brewing skills to make biofuel. I'm Toby Tucker here with John Egan, Territory Manager for Country Mall Group out in Southern California, Arizona, and Hawaii for this segment of the Whirlpool. John Egan, there's a couple rules about jumping into my Whirlpool. Number one, clothing is not optional, sir. <laughs> you got to wear clothing. And two, stay on your side and no handsiness. All right. You got it. <laughs> man, I'm, I'm super excited to have John on, man. He's, uh, he's one of my favorite dudes. I'm super happy to have him. He's actually on my team uh, with Country Mall Group, our territory manager covering Southern California, Arizona, and Hawaii. I mean, no better territory to have. Pretty good. Yeah. I'll be it. There's no traveling right now, but yeah, I mean, fantastic to have you on our team. Uh, happy to be on the team. Super stoked. You know, one of the reasons I got you on today, John, is because number one, you're like the most interesting guy in the world. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at your picture now, you know, and on the video, you got the fully bearded, right? You look like you should be drinking a dose of keys and in a, a suit. But <laughs> but no, like every time I see you or every time we talk, it's, it's a new story about something unique you're doing or something cool. And I learn something every day. 
But I wanted to bring you on and chat about something that you've done. And I always thought it it was just crazy. And I thought the listeners would want to hear about it. But particularly the story about you making biofuel to power your vehicle at some point. And like, tell me about that. I mean, I guess I should back up and tell the listening audience about you. But obviously a seasoned brewer spent time not only at Stone, but at Mission and then dabbled in a little bit of uh, the coffee industry as well. But yeah, t- tell me a little about you and then how you got into this craziness of fueling your vehicle with old grease trap, I guess. Yeah. Well, you know, like a lot of us, we all started in home brewing and I started home brewing, I think, in 99 or 2000. Started working at Stone in 2001. Learned everything I knew, well, pretty much everything about brewing at that point from uh, my good buddy Lee Chase. And along the way, when I was home brewing, I was living up in Oregon very briefly in Eugene. And I remember hearing about like people running their cars on biofuels, specifically waste vegetable oil. And I thought that was so cool. You know, I was like, man, this is like stuff that people are throwing away, but there's this value in it. You could run your car on it. I'm also kind of a gearhead. I really like wrenching on my trucks and all that. So somewhere along the way, I think it was like maybe 2003 around there. I remember seeing something about Willie Nelson biodiesel and my good friend. He's a huge Willie Nelson fan. I think he's seen Willie in in concert like half dozen times. And I was like, hey, man, check this out. And I I forwarded him a link or something. And like, isn't this cool? I'm like, man, I kind of want to try this. I want to make some of this. Yeah, Willie had like a brick and mortar station of biofuel down here in Texas, right? Yep. Yep, exactly. And so that was really what kind of spawned the journey. And, you know, it's having gone through working in the brewery and starting to really get a good grasp on process flows and just using pumps and piping and you know, all that stuff, just moving liquid around more or less. This idea of once I start to research biodiesel and, and see how there's so many similarities to brewing. It was really intriguing. And I was like, man, I I know I can do this. And like, I want to do this. And I was single at the time and had a lot of free time. And so anyway, yeah, I started out, made a one gallon batch or maybe a half gallon batch of biodiesel. Don't mean to cut you off there. So where would you get this stuff? I mean, did you get it from like the bistro or at Stone? How did you approach that the individual or owner of a restaurant and say, hey, man, can I uh, grab this old greasy nonsense from you? Can I pump out your... You know, I started getting it from restaurants way before I started getting it from the bistro at Stone. So my buddy and I, he lived out in Fallbrook, kind of a rural community in North County, San Diego, where we both grew up. And we would go out on the weekends, usually Saturday morning, we'll go out at like 6 a.m. when just no one was around. And we just go around, drive around town and pump out the grease traps. So we got it there. That was where we started making it. And the quality of that oil wasn't that great. It was had a lot of food particulate and water in it. So it was difficult to work with, but um, we made it happen. Yeah. So you get it, I'm assuming in your garage or something and like you brew your, I say brew, is that the right term? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like you're, you're literally brewing it. So yeah. what was your thought press? So like, all right, so you made fuel out of it. Were you just like, hey, I'm just going to throw this in my truck and see what happens? Or do you have to make certain modifications to make sure it's all legit? Well, that's a really good question. So older vehicles are much more tolerable of biodiesel than newer ones. The like a lot of newer vehicles, probably maybe around early 2000s and newer 
they have such fine tolerances in the fuel. So when I started, my buddy had an old Chevy diesel truck and I actually had a diesel Mercedes that I had traded. My parents had a Mercedes, a gas Mercedes that had some problems with it. They, they gave it to me. I drove it around and I had another friend who had just like inherited this old 1980 Mercedes diesel. And I was like, man, I really want to get a diesel and, you know, start doing this biodiesel thing. And he's like, you want to trade? And so we literally traded keys and pink slips, which is pretty cool. So I had this diesel. I don't really need to do anything to it. I mean, in that car particularly, you could dump straight vegetable oil in the tank mixed with biodiesel or diesel fuel and it would run. So yeah, that's kind of like, that was the gist of it. But yeah, we started making it out of my friend's house. We built a processor outside and the processor, basically the system is um, gutted electric water heater, a couple 55 gallon drums pump, and then just black iron pipe and some tubing to kind of hodgepodge together. And that's how it started. Progressing over the years, I ended up building, I think, four or five processors. When the, like, the final one that I had was like so dialed in with the way that I liked it, and it worked. And I was making at least 30 gallons of fuel a week for quite some time and not even able to use it all. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. So over the kind of lifespan of your Mercedes, how many miles do you think you drove using the biofuel or whatever that you crafted? So once I had that car, I've always been a truck guy. I've always had four wheel drive trucks. So when I got that car, I also had a a 92 Toyota pickup that had the notorious 3.0 liter engine that blew head gaskets. It was on its last leg. I'd put a new motor in it. It was just worn out. I blew head gaskets again. And I was like, okay, well, I don't need to drive it every day. I've got this Mercedes that get me to work, whatever, but I need another truck. So the Mercedes is always kind of a secondary vehicle. I sold the Toyota and I ended up buying a, a 99 Dodge 4x4 with the Cummins turbo diesel. And that truck was more biodiesel, biofuel friendly than the newer ones, obviously, uh, but still very finicky. With the Mercedes, I only, I probably put like, you know, a couple thousand miles on it. But the Dodge, I had that truck for five or six years. And I'd say it had biodiesel in it 80%. of the fuel that was burned in that truck during that period of time was fuel that I made or that another guy that I I met through biodiesel that I bought from him when I had some supply issues. So yeah, thousands of miles, probably 12,000 miles a year. I don't know, something like that. And the cost for you to make it, just time and energy or? Time and energy, but there are some costs. The, The biggest one being methanol. So uh, methanol, the price of methanol fluctuates based on fuel prices, all kinds of different factors. But um, you had methanol that you had to buy and then also caustic soda or lye, which is just powdered sodium hydroxide. The same chemical we use in a brewery to clean tanks. It's absolutely, you know, it'll melt your skin given enough time. It's nasty. So building the processor was one cost. But ongoing, it was anywhere between like 85 cents and to a dollar per gallon to make it. And that varied based on the price of methanol. And I was buying methanol by the by the drum, by the 55 gallon drum. Ah, that's crazy. Yeah. Was there any anybody else other than your buddy? I know you mentioned you built several processors, but it was a, a group of y'all that kind of hung out and all did it or. No, it was mainly just my friend and I, and we built the processor like at his dad's house. And then 
I was living in Oceanside at the time and, you know, I got in a relationship and or I don't even remember, but I wasn't available as much on the weekends to go out and do the, the grease stuff with him. And around that same time, I started getting access to the oil from the Stone Bistro, which was plenty. So I built another one of my house in Oceanside in the backyard. But yeah, it was mainly just him and I. And then I joined like a SoCal biodiesel Yahoo group and I met a couple guys locally in the area. And one guy was going big and he had like a 275 gallon tote that was full of biodiesel in his garage. And like I said, when I had some supply issues, I went over to him and he would charge me, I want to say two bucks a gallon or something. And mind you, this is all kind of on the there's a real gray area with it. You know, it's not a taxed fuel. And so there's that whole kind of, is it okay? Right. Does, does government want a piece of the pie? I don't know. So <laughs> we kept it. <laughs> Kept it pretty, pretty down low, but pretty much my buddy and I, and then this one other guy that I hung out with a little bit, but it was real small, you know, but in the area, there were people that you could see driving around that had a biodiesel sticker on their truck or, you know, it was around, it was kind of popular during that time. I mean, you just think about the creativity that, uh, that we had on the, the single side and no kids. So like, it's tough yeah. to find that time, right? Yeah. No, These days. Yeah. <laughs> You mentioned uh, taxes in preparation for this. I quickly did a search on the Googs, as I call it. I'm not lying. I'm going to read the story to you. Illinois tax man hassles biofuel motorist. The Illinois Department of Revenue insists that 79 and his wife paid $2,500 for the right to drive a 1986 Volkswagen Golf using biofuel. Bureau of Criminal Investigations Units and John Egan show up to the home on January 4th to threaten the couple with felony charges that carry up to five years imprisonment. I was afraid, Ms. told the Herald in a review newspaper. I came out of the bathroom. I thought, good God, we paid our taxes. The check didn't bounce. The couple had committed the crime of picking up waste vegetable oil from a restaurant and using it to power their four-door hatchback. The revenue officials claimed that the couple would have to apply for a fuel supplier license designed for large businesses and post a $2,500 bond to avoid prison. They had failed to pay any gasoline tax on the restaurant byproduct. Over five years, the couple had used 1,135 gallons of vegetable oil worth $244 in taxes. What I found interesting is literally this Bureau of Criminal Investigations unit agent was named John Egan. Interesting. What are are the odds of that? He said it was like Indiana, (laughs) Illinois. It looks like it's back in uh, 2008. Oh, wow. You know, what's also interesting about that is my grandpa was from that area of the country. So that could be relative connection there. Uh oh. Yeah, maybe, maybe they shouldn't publish this whirlpool. The tax guy might be coming after you. No, but it, it looks like in, in reading the article further, Illinois did make amendments to the article, pretty much saying that blending, just changing the definition of blending, which allowed people to use byproducts in their uh, in non-commercial use. So I think they were off the hook, but I just was like, man, John Egan, that's crazy. He's all yeah. over the biofuel world. I am on both sides. I'm making it in my garage and I'm also enforcing law. (laughs) (laughs) law. (laughs) Oh man, it's the crazy story. So tell me, is there anything else you're working on? Anything, any crazy, I know some of your crazy hobbies, but anything else that you enjoy doing that, that might be uh, a little bit wild, if you will. These days, not too much, you know, with two little kids, my wife and I are pretty busy, but uh, you know, just gardening and kind of just stuff like that. You you like to hunt, right? Yeah. 
If you shoot a, a recurve bow, which is, that's cool. Yep. I shoot a recurve, but I don't, I haven't hunted with the bow yet. I've, I'm only a firearms hunter at this point, but someday for sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll make it happen, man. You and I enjoy a lot of the, th- the same stuff. So I appreciate yep. it, man, John, that's a kick <clears throat> story and I always enjoy hearing it. Yeah. It's uh appreciate your time. It's, it's always interesting, man. Awesome. Absolutely. And I, I don't want to blow up your inbox by any means, but we'll probably have some questions. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to send them your way. That's Jay Egan at countrymalt.com, right? Yep. Yeah. Sweet. No, it's, well, it's a subject that I have always loved to talk about because it was just so interesting and it, the benefits to the planet and to my wallet are huge. And it's, it was just a lot of fun. So, yeah, happy to chat anytime. And I certainly can't leave without saying anybody uh, in SoCal, Hawaii, Arizona that want to chat brewing, distilling or you know, want to want to look at some of the products that we carry. John, your man, he'll take care of you. Yep. All right, buddy. John, I appreciate your time, man. Right on. Thanks, Toby. All right, buddy. We'll talk soon. Sounds good. I appreciate it. And that's another episode of the Whirlpool in the books. Look forward to everybody checking in next time on the Brew Deck and episodes of the Whirlpool. I'm your host, Toby Tucker. Talk to you later. Cheers. Cheers.